0: My name is Jeffrey Sidoris, and this is Process Driven. You know, terms like icon and legend get thrown around pretty casually these days. But in the case of photographer Joe McNally, they're not only absolutely appropriate, but also well-deserved. He's shot for some of the most prestigious magazines and clients in the world, including Time, Newsweek, Life, Sports Illustrated, New York, and National Geographic. His work has earned him dozens of awards, including the first Alfred Eisenstadt Award for Journalistic Impact. He's a best-selling author and has recently released his newest book, The Real Deal, Field Notes from the Life of a Working Photographer. He's also humble, funny, and tells terrific stories, and I am so grateful to have had the chance to sit down with him for a bit. Here's my conversation with photographer, director, author, storyteller, and Nikon ambassador, Joe McNally.
1: Please listen carefully.
0: One of the things that struck me and maybe the biggest thing that struck me about the book, well, first the title. And we talked a little bit about it last time we spoke about that word working. And if we could come back to that, I'd like to do that. But I think for me, the biggest takeaway is how much joy you both bring to and get from photography. It seems to be this sort of childlike enthusiasm that you just haven't lost.
1: Yeah. I mean, I still, you know, I still uh, love time behind the camera and I still frame the world. I can't help it. You know, I wander around with a rectangle around my eyes, you know, so uh, it's just part of me. It's, It's in, it's in my DNA for, you know, that's a often used phrase now, but it is, you know, the, the, the idea of a photographic career, the, enacting of it, the participation in it, it, does wind itself around your head and your heart in very, very complex and wonderful ways. You can kind of never rid yourself of it.
0: How has the joy changed, if at all? Do you still get joy in the same places? Do you still bring the same kind of joy to it? Or how, how have those things changed for you?
1: Well, I, I actually am having more fun as a photographer now than I think I'm ever have. I mean, and that's, that's not to mean that I don't miss the National Geographic to a certain degree or, you know, life or, or the magazine market, which I participated in so fully for so many years. I mean, these things were going to happen. I couldn't stop them. But now, you know, uh, I I look around and, you know, I write a blog, I have social media channels, uh, I write proposals, I create a lot of the things that I, I do. And that's very satisfying. I don't have to wait by the phone for a magazine editor to judge me worthy to go shoot a picture anymore, you know, and wait, wait for that phone call.
0: Right. When did that change for you? Not having to wait where work was kind of finding its way to you instead of you having to kind of chase down work. When did that change?
1: Well, I I always, thankfully, knock on wood, always had a lot of work, you know, all throughout the magazine Days, you know, uh, I oftentimes was turning away as many jobs as I could accept. And that was a really wonderful place to be. Wow. Yeah. And to. Uncommon, actually. Well, you know, um, magazines were robust. The magazines I started working for Sports Illustrated, Life, Time, Newsweek, uh, National Geographic. Uh, I, sh- I shot covers for all of them. And you know, the power of magazines is not to be underestimated at that point in time. You know, you could really open doors. They had budget. I, I've shot pictures, you know, over the years for Sports Illustrated that a single frame, a single picture in the magazine costs more than $40,000 to produce. Wow. That doesn't happen anymore. You know, a lot of, you know, of online magazines, that's their entire yearly budget for photography. Right. You know, um so... That was a very heady era to grow up in and also fraught. You know, you had to do good work. You had to stretch a lot of time on the road, a lot of, um, I don't know, angst, emotion, uh, physical stress, but it was very rewarding to have the National Geographic come out with your picture on the cover.
2: Right, Uh, right.
1: That was a wonderful thing. And it got talked about you know, so the world has changed now, you know, geographic or life would come out and you'd have a cover and that would stay on the newsstands for a month. People would talk about it. Now it's, it's fleeting, it's gone, but I've adjusted, you know, because again, I don't know if you know, uh, Gregory Heisler's work.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so.
2: Yeah.
1: It's very dear, dear friend. And, uh, He's up at Syracuse now teaching. We, we used to talk, and he told me at one point. He said, "Joe, this was going to happen, whether we liked it or not. So it's either adjust and adapt, or do something else." You right. know? Uh, so uh, I adjusted. I adapted. I started writing a blog. Um, I found, refound, you know, some a lot of joy actually in my writing skills. Uh, We established an Instagram account, et cetera. This is nothing original. All photographers are doing this. But I find that I enjoy it. And I can pursue something on my own and publish it on my blog if I want to. Now, you know, monetization comes into question. You still have to work for somebody. But I've bent the money-making aspects of the studio is bent more towards commercial work. Right and you know when you land a commercial job like i'm up for a commercial job right now that the fee would float the entire first quarter wow so you know i've i've talked you know with other photographers of my you know sort of genre generation and the the consensus is we no longer fish for fish we fish for whales so you may not get that many jobs a year anymore but they're really really big jobs right and in between, you're doing other stuff. I always counsel young photographers, you know, put a lot of lines in the water. We, we lecture, we teach, we, I teach workshops. I sell uh, fine art prints through the Monroe Gallery in Santa Fe. Uh, we have a blog. We have sponsors on the blog. Passive income is a piece of our puzzle for sure. It's not as simple as it once was, but it is actually pretty enjoyable.
0: And you had to learn those skills along the way because they, you, when you started these things, you know, obviously hadn't been heard of, but it, it, it sounds like through that adaptation, through taking on this new skill set, it's, it's certainly one of the things that's allowed you to stay busy, relevant, et cetera. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It certainly has extended my career, um, you know, uh, in ways that I could not have imagined when I first picked up the camera. Uh, I mean, heck we, you know, we, didn't even imagine digital, you know, right. I, I remember, <laughs> you know, Emory Christoph was a phenomenally creative photographer, um, a genius really who worked for the National Geographic on the technical side of things. He was, had no peer really. And I remember going to a lecture, I think it was probably like maybe 90, at Grubner Hall and Emery stood at the podium and he held up a roll of Kodachrome and he said, in your lifetime, this is gone. And I was like, ah, you know, go on. He's done too much under, underwater <laughs> photography. He's got water in his ears. He's, you know, he's crazy. Yeah. You know, but many years later, I was invited to a lunch in New York City with Steve McCurry and um, not Pete Turner, Eric Mayola.
2: Hmm.
1: And the three of us uh, just kind of, you know, Kodak, you know, they bought us a nice lunch and then said, okay, here we go if we stopped making Kodachrome, would you miss it? And I had to say, no, you know. Uh,
0: even at that point, even even that early on in digital.
1: Once I shot, you know, I shot the first all-digital story in the history of the National Geographic, and that was 2003, and I was shooting a Nikon D1X. And at that point, I was sold. The D1X was the first digital camera I had heard about or used that could approximate the quality of Kodachrome. And at that point, it was, you know, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead, you know, into digital. And so emotionally, I said, yeah, sure, of course, I'll miss Kodachrome. You know, I've shot so many pictures, and those yellow boxes are part of my makeup, emotionally. right? But not anymore. Not when I have to compete in the logistics of being a photographer now and deliver things fast and and, you know, be able to see my results immediately and all that sort of stuff that all of a sudden came upon us in the digital era, I was sold pretty immediately.
0: Was that common? I mean, were were you kind of unique among your peer group in, in accepting it so quickly? Or did everybody kind of go, yeah, this is the future. We're on board from the beginning.
1: I think, you know, a lot of magazine photographers might have been uh, somewhat slower, certainly uh, newspaper shooters. Embraced it first and fastest, yeah, and very logical progression right. from there for sure. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't count myself as a digital pioneer or anything. I didn't start with the D1. I I didn't pick up a a digital camera until the D1X, which was Nikon's second generation of flagship uh, for for digital. So I, I wasn't certainly in the first vanguard or anything like that.
0: As you were making that transition. Too digital. Was there anything that you found yourself missing about film or was there any sort of anxiety about adopting digital as your primary workflow for professional work?
1: Yeah, no, I and when I'm I'm out there and, and the job is on the line, I I try to eliminate areas of anxiety. Yeah, right, 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 <laughs> you know, right. I mean, there's there's been this big flap over time, you know, with uh, certain cameras coming out and people going, oh, it's it's only got one card slot. You know, and I got uh, I got pinged a few times, you know, what do you think the, the new Nikon Z cameras only have one card slot? This is when Nikon first dipped their toe in the mirrorless market. And I said, you know, you have to remember, you're talking to somebody who shot cassettes of film, 36 exposure cassettes of film, and then would take the entire production of, say, two to three weeks of work in India, for instance. I refer to this because I actually did this. And take two to 300 rolls for which there was no backup, put it in a Federal Express box <laughs> and send it from Mumbai to Washington, D.C. And oh, no. then wait for three days to see if the box even freaking showed up. Right, right, right. You know, so I'm OK with one card slot. <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah. I don't get fussy about this stuff because to me, the digital technology that we have, I'm shooting Z9s now and it's an absolute marvel. Yeah. I mean, it, it's astonishing, the technology we have in our hands. So, um, A, I'm glad I have that reference point, but B, I don't miss those days.
0: Yeah. They, again, I think they are sort of fetishized to a large degree. And and you still have the purists that insist that, well, it's better, it's better, it, it's got more of this, it's better that.
1: There's a look, you know, I mean, a wedding photographers, I can see. Mm-hmm. You know, there's certain wedding photographers who are very popular who shoot color neg. Right you know, because of the look of it. There's certainly a look to color neg. If you go on Instagram, for instance, and you go to the Gordon Parks Foundation and look at his work, his early color work, there's a look to it that is absolutely phenomenally beautiful. No two ways about it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: There was a, a Gordon Parks show here in D.C. in 2018. I think I went through it a half dozen times. You know, there, there is still something kind of magical about standing in front of a print versus, or even a photo book, even flipping through a book versus a screen that just doesn't, the connection just isn't there for me.
1: Yeah, I, I'm right there with you. I love, love to see a, a beautiful print, love to go through a beautiful book.
0: Yeah, same, yeah. You know, talking about Gordon Parks, there's, there's such a confidence in Parks' work, which we often assume is from a sense of certainty about the work, but that's not always the case. There's a terrific video of Sally Mann from her last show who I would also say is very confident in her voice and approach to the work, uh, the themes in her work. But in this clip, she says she prefers to pray to the angel of uncertainty rather than certainty because it's the uncertainty and the happy accidents that often help make her work special.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, I don't know who said it, but a, a well-known photographer once said publicly, or maybe to me, I can't remember, uh, if you're going to endeavor in this industry, you have to make uncertainty your friend. Hmm. So there are people in the world who like order, who like a schedule, like a calendar, who like knowing what they're going to do two Thursdays from now at nine o'clock in the morning. Right. I ain't one of them.
0: (laughs) Were you ever one of them?
1: No, I don't think so. I think, You know, I'm a field person and I am very well used to rolling with the punch, even if the punch really hurts. Mm. Um, So I think uncertainty is not necessarily a bad thing. It can be, you could translate it into angst or anxiety, but any way you slice it, it's fuel for the fire. You know, and I always tell photographers, you know, or if anyone asks, you know, it's like, If you ever get to the point where you just look at this and say, yeah, I got this, you know, then it's time to hang the cameras up. And then, as I always say, go inside and become an editor, because obviously, you know everything. Right. You know, and uh, so I think uncertainty is part of the gig. You're uncertain about where your next paycheck is coming from, where your next job is coming from. When you get on location, you're uncertain about the weather, you're uncertain about as you approach a subject, especially a well-known subject, are they going to be a jerk? Are they going to be friendly? Is it going to work? These are questions that natter about your head constantly when you're on location or, or pick up a camera.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Is it ever uncertainty about how the work is going to be received or perceived, or is that, is that something else?
1: That's, I think, something else, because then you're seeking approval. Yeah. You know, you, you've done the work and then you offer it up to the magazine or to the editor or the client and you sincerely hope, yes, you know, that, that it is received well. And you feel, you know, even when you've done a good job and in your gut you've known, you know you've done a good job, there's always that kind of thing where there could be a naysayer. Because so many things that, at... Uh, at a client base are decided not necessarily by one person, they're decided by committee.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And you know, uh a horse that gets designed by committee, as we all know, is never gonna run fast. <laughs> <Right>. You know. <laughs> so uh, you know, a picture in and of itself is is hopefully pure in spirit. It's a it's a decisive moment to borrow, you know, an oft used phrase. You know, the the beauty of being a photographer in the field, for instance, on your own, is that moment of exposure that decision making process is mine alone right whether i I get it or I miss it that moment that split second is mine, and there's nothing you know there's no attachments to it there it's it's free of other trappings. It's like bing, okay, here it is. This is the picture I made. then you can find real positive acceptance or you can find debate, you know, like, oh, I don't know, is that. did did we want it? Did we want the sky to be blue? I'm not sure, you know? So there is, you know, sometimes, you know, a fraught path for a photograph to uh, get through the gate.
0: How has that changed over the years or has it changed? Is it still as much by committee? I would think the committee aspect of it would be even greater now than back in the newspaper days or in the magazine days.
1: I'm sure it is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, when life would assign me to a job um a big job you know i would send them 12 selects and that would be it and they would never question it really they would just say yeah you know okay
0: they wouldn't come back what else you got joe
1: no wow but over time photographers lost some of that authority i think you know when i would shoot for sports illustrated i would present my take and that was it mm-hmm. but then in the era of digital what happens, uh, you know, what you did happen at SI, uh, SI doesn't really exist anymore, but especially the action shooters would shoot a game like on Friday night, go back to the hotel, set up an FTP and transmit every single frame.
2: Really? Wow. Yes.
1: And by the time they woke up the next morning, those several thousand frames they had just shot at a ball game were at the magazine wow. and they'd pick up, get on an airplane, shoot a game on Saturday night, rinse and repeat. So the magazine had access to every single frame. That can be daunting, but in a event, a fast-paced event, like an Olympics, you know, when I shot the 2016 Rio games at the major venues, I would just jack into an ethernet. Mm-hmm. And my stuff, my stuff would come up at the Sports Illustrated office, every single frame.
0: So at that point, are you not making choices around here are my selects?
1: Yes, but that also is a function of speed. They're trying to get the pictures out. Mm-hmm. So like, especially, it's especially crucial, like Associated Press, Reuters, AFP, those photographers are shooting on massive deadlines. Right. And their editors are, their editor, you know, Usain Bolt crosses the finish line. There's pictures on the wires within a minute or two of that happening. Yeah, sure. So that has changed too. The speed of delivery has changed.
0: In that has, and this, this might be a, a red herring, but- has the quality of the final product gone down with the person making the choices around what is or isn't good, in quotes, having, having that having been changed, where it's now in the hands of sort of art directors and picture editors, rather than you saying, here are my 12?
1: Not necessarily. The beautiful thing about having that singular voice for a story is that the story that would get presented was really classically the photographer's vision of the way it should have been. Mm -hmm. And editors would collaborate, like Mel Scott at Life Magazine, John Lowengard, fiercely believed in the vision of the photographer. And that's still around, you know, even though uh, I wouldn't, uh, at at the Tokyo Olympics, uh, we would send an edited version, I would edit and send what I thought was good. But the beautiful thing about still being in this industry is my editor, Uh, at Zuma Press for the Tokyo Olympics was Jimmy Colton, who's an absolutely peerless editor. And that is a gift from God when you have a great editor on your team. So here's a good situation. When I was shooting the skateboarding, I never shot skateboarding before in my life. It was an intensely hot day in Tokyo. Sun just beaming down. And, you know, every move that the skateboarders would make, you know, the crescendo of power drives, you know, pfft, you know, you know, hundreds of pictures, you know, being made of a single move. Right. So I thought, well, it wasn't an, an original idea. I thought, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to shoot shadows because the sun was so harsh that the shadows of the skateboarders was, you know, bang into the concrete of the pipe. And so I sent some of that stuff in and I, I had, a a nice shadow picture and it just had the the tip of a sneaker hang in there with me this is going somewhere Um, (laughs) no i'm with you i I can see it i can see it in my head (laughs) so it's just the tip of that sneaker and i sent it in to jimmy as an you know shadow picture skateboarding you know generic caption right he looked at that sneaker And he went through hundreds of other pictures and he found that it correlated to the smudge on the sneaker of the gold medal winner. No kidding. That became a widely played picture because it was the gold medal winner. Wow. And I was thoroughly embarrassed. I was like, oh man. (laughs) And And he was like, yeah, yeah. You know, how many years have you been writing captions? But that's the power of a good editor who deeply cares about the mission of the photographer in the field.
0: Yeah. You've talked about a few people who have been helpful, even instrumental at various points in your career. And I wonder how has the role of mentor changed? And where do you see it now compared to when you were coming up?
1: Well, I mean, again, it's changed, you know, uh, the, the constant advice I would give young photographers back in the day would be go get a job at a newspaper or an internship mm-hmm. because in the days of wet darkroom, the photographers would all collect at the end of the day. They had to because they had processed their film mm-hmm. and they would kibitz and give each other grief and there'd be this camaraderie of a staff. And as a young photographer, if you were part of that staff, you could Learn from these photographers. You could become part of that operation and observe how people were working, what their negatives were like, you know, and all of that, how they thought, what they would say, and how they would process their way through a job. And that was a very valuable learning experience. That's really not available anymore. Right. And so mentorship has taken on, I think, a different path. There's a lot of online mentoring going on, and some of it's very, very valuable. You know, yeah. I mean, everybody teaches workshops now. You have to be careful. With, you know, there are people who have you know two or three years of experience, and they're all of a sudden teaching workshops. Right. You know, <laughs> I, I would I would look at those pretty hard. You know, um, but you know, there are photographers who have slots on their roster of availability where they would uh, they would mentor or they would portfolio consult. Those are very valuable. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a different format now. I mean, when I was a copy boy at the Daily News, I bought a cheap ticket to the West Coast and I stayed with friends in L.A. And I went to see out of the blue. I I did. I was doing a little bit of work for the Sunday Daily News magazine and the art director there gave me a couple of phone numbers. So I had Douglas Kirkland's phone number. Oh, wow. And I called up Douglas and he had this beautiful home up in the hills and he was always such a gentleman, you know. Uh, you know, he's he's largely retired now, but you know, he's he was a complete gentleman. And um he said, Oh yeah, okay, come on up. And I'm walking down these hallways that are lined with dye transfer prints of Marilyn Monroe. I'm right, like I'm right, right. <laughs> you know. And and Douglas told me, You're a fantastic photographer. Wow. This is wonderful work.
0: Wow. How did that land for you? Do you remember how it felt?
1: Untrue. <laughs> you know, um, it was he was he was classic douglas he was always kindly and and decent and you know i knew that my stuff wasn't great you know but then i went to see con keys who was the director of photography of the los angeles times hmm. the same day oh wow and and uh he told me flat out i'd never make it so i i rented a car from an outfit called rent-a-wreck which was a cheap rental
0: I remember Renderec,
1: and I drove north to San Francisco, and I called Paul Fusco. Was a member of Magnum, whose work I tremendously admired. And you know, this this was in the days when you actually called people. He answered the phone, and I said, "Mr. Fusco, I'm a copy boy at the New York Daily News. I, I work with Bob Clive there a little bit. He gave me your number. I really admire your work. I'd love to come and show you mine." And he was like, uh, "Well, okay." You know, And so it was prior to the days of immediately being designated as a deranged stalker. <laughs> right. you know? And uh, so he had a beautiful home in Mill Valley, as I recall, mm-hmm. and he was very thoughtful. He made two piles of my work and he said, this pile, pretty much garbage. This pile is going in a good direction. And I was like, oh man, this is thoughtful. This is real.
2: Mm-hmm. This
1: is real, serious criticism this is criticism that you can latch on to and listen to and that's really i think as a young photographer what you need right somebody who who doesn't completely torpedo you but is realistic enough to know that it ain't all great yet you know you got you got work ahead of you yeah and some photographers you know sadly i think uh they uh they find well I, I I never feel like you you always have to find something you have to throw somebody a lifeline
2: mm-hmm. you
1: know if they're really desperately serious you have to be realistic about the quality and caliber of the work but you have to find a lifeline that someone can hang on to if they're going to continue um, I was at the Annie Adams workshop once and I passed by and a very well known photographer was looking at one of the young photographers there and. Uh, french accent which i will you know not try to repeat but he said
0: oh come on a little bit <laughs> well,
1: he said basically why do you pollute the earth with all these bad photos ouch you know and i found the kid later and i had a beer with him and and i said look you know that critique was really more about him than it was about you wow you know you have to understand that so um because you can just i mean Man, you can you can really really take the wind out of somebody's sails. Yeah. Uh, uh, so there's criticism and there's critique. I think critique is um, structural and lays a groundwork for improvement.
2: Mm-hmm. I
0: you know and and there are people learn in different ways. I mean, I to go back and I don't remember what year it was. It was one of the workshops you did at the LA Convention Center. I think it wasn't Flashbus with David. Um, God, I don't remember, but you were on stage, and one of the things I I remembered and really resonated with me is you weren't you weren't teaching per se. You you weren't saying okay, do this, do this. Here's what you want to do. We were watching you work through a setup, Mm -hmm. and that was invaluable to me because it wasn't it wasn't someone sort of playing to a crowd or playing to an audience or or trying to tell you what they thought you wanted to needed to or there to learn. It was just you working through a setup and seeing how you would approach it. And that, that it's always stuck with me. And I think that when I, when I find someone that is, that is doing something that I want to learn, I find it more valuable just to watch them do their thing than have them try to teach me, if that makes sense.
1: Sure. Yeah. No, you have to risk that, I think the risk of shooting live on stage like that is that I'm constantly making mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I had many people come up. You might have saw, seen me on a Kelby tour. I, I did a bunch of Kelby tours. And um, I had many people come up to me after those and said, said to me like, man, I thought if for you it just happened. Right. Like I'm like, man, it doesn't happen for anybody. This is a process and you make a lot of mistakes along the way.
0: Well, and I, th- I think that, I mean, to kind of go back a couple of weeks ago, I think that's what I latched on to with the title of your book, a working, that that word, working photographer, that there's a there's an approach that you seem to take to making pictures that's that's more rooted in apprenticeship and working this skill, not just and this is no disrespect to the people who are doing it differently, but I'm an artist and this is this is kind of what I'm doing. There, there is there is work to this. There is there is effort that needs to be put in, and there's skill that needs to be honed, and, and that only happens over time. Am I reading that wrong?
1: No, not at all. Not at all. Uh, I've always said this is, that there is a hard work to the uh, career or the act of being a photographer. And, you know, we've all been sold the pipe dream, you know, the camera manufacturers, you know, millions of pixels automatic camera you know does everything for you right well that's all fine and i'm really appreciative of it i think it's great but the mission of the photographer remains the same today as it was in the days of glass plates and that's to tell a good story and telling good stories is hard work there's emotional involvement and risk uh you know if you're really going to tell a good story you have to log the hours you have to research it you have to be involved You have to go into the field. You have to put your own life and your own schedule aside and pursue that story. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of costs to this. And it's not the easiest thing in the world to do, despite the automation of the technology.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, the technology is going to maybe help, but it's not going to give you the story. It's not going to tell you what to focus on.
1: No, no, not at all. It's very, you know, it's a powerful thing, you know, that stays with you. I mean, Balanchine, you know, I, I've shot a lot of dance photography over the years, and mm-hmm. the great choreographer Balanchine always said, "I don't want dancers who want to dance; I want dancers who need to dance." Mm. And that's a powerful thing to say, you know. Yeah. The when you mentioned earlier about DNA, you know, photographers need to photograph. Once you once you are seriously involved in this, you need to do this. It's not just like, oh hey, I'll just go shoot some pictures today. Right.
0: Because you're setting yourself up for a lifetime of
2: struggle.
1: Yes. Yeah. This is a this is um, and that's what the book is really about. Uh and your your isolation of that word working photographer is very palpable for me because I purposely avoided professional photographer because mm-hmm. that definition has become extremely elastic. Right. And so I am a working photographer. I have been for 40 years and the good and the bad and the ugly. Right, of it.
2: right, right. right. <laughs>
0: was there a photo for you way back when? Childhood maybe, before you even decided to, to to embark on this journey? Was there a photo that went, Joe, this is this is where you're gonna be for the rest of your life? Was there something that, that got you to pick up a camera or was it something else?
1: Well, I was forced to pick up a camera because I was in school to be a writer. And I, I was required to take a photography class, but I do know that my father was very fascinated with cameras. He was a pretty good artist actually, you know, but he, you know, he grew up in the depression and he wasn't allowed to be an artist. So he had a book because he was in the Navy during World War II. And he had a book, it was a pictorial history of World War II. And it was one of those old school books, like from the sixties, I don't know, Reader's Digest or something like that, a big anthology, horrible layouts. But I went through that book so many times when I was really young. And I mean like young, like seven, eight, nine, ten. 10, wow. that to this day, I still remember the layouts, not just the pictures. I remember the layouts. And that I think might've been a start for me in terms of like, without even knowing it, uh, becoming a photographer, mm. visual memory. Mm. Cause I couldn't believe, you know, I mean, it was amazing and horrible, the pictures I was looking at it, but I couldn't also believe that there were like pictures of this, right? you know, which was just crazy to me. And, uh, and I went from there, you know, I, I went to five different grammar schools, so I bounced around a lot. And then I, I lived in kind of a fantasy world. I, I, I liked legends and epics and and comic books. Comic books are very powerful storytelling devices. And I can, I can sense their influence on me, absolutely. I, I think I, you know, embrace the idea of stories. And this is, again, something that I would counsel for young photographers that has been a little bit lost by the wayside. I was very uh, thankful that I did an education in photography at Syracuse. Mm-hmm. And that I stayed in school and I did a master's degree in photojournalism because that exposed me to the great storytellers. Right. Um, and those amazing essays that Gene Smith did for life, you know, um, nurse midwife Maud Callan, uh, Country Doctor, mm. uh, you know, Spanish Village, those kinds of stories, you know, Larry Burroughs and the flight of Yankee Pop. Yeah. Uh, and the way those photographers paced, you know, the the impact of those pictures and told the story visually and the way then that would play out on a page, that was magic. You know, um, we mentioned printing earlier and I love a good print, but it's a, it's a very different experience. And you can tell, like when you go to a gallery and you look at a beautiful print on the wall, it's, a, it's on a white wall and it's isolated, it's framed, it's matted. The message there says, stay with me this is your experience right now. Mm. But when you have pictures on a page with text, the message there is keep moving, keep turning the page. There's more. So that also is very powerful. You know, it's a different kind of photographic experience when you are in the process of telling a story as opposed to perhaps creating an art piece that's gonna be on the wall.
0: Subscribe to Jeffrey Sadoris everything in your favorite podcast app, and help support the show by leaving a review or a rating wherever you listen, or by sharing the episode on social media. You can learn more about Joe on his website at joemcnally.com. That's J-O-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.com. He's also on Twitter and Instagram at Joe McNally photo. Be sure to pick up a copy of his new book, The Real Deal, Field Notes from the Life of a Working Photographer, wherever you buy books. Connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at Jeffrey Sadoris. That's J-E-F-F-E-R-Y-S-A-D-D-O-R-I-S or on my website at jeffreysadoris.com. As always, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you'll come back for the next one.